from uh, about 15 years on up, uh, a great deal of my thoughts were uh, basically unshareable. We are all evil in some form or another. Yes, I am not 100%, but I am evil. My mother was a, a sick, angry, hungry, and very sad woman. I hated her, but I wanted to love my mother. This is Serial Killing, a podcast. Hello, my name is Alyssa Carroll, and welcome to Serial Killing, a podcast, where we go through the life stories of serial killers to see if we might catch a glimpse of why they displayed their famous, vile, and disturbing behaviors. Special thanks to some of my patrons as always. Rachel, Whitney, Heidi, Pixie, Maya, Alethea, Elena, Aaron, Katorres, Catherine, Sam, Linda, Janice, Katerina, Teresa, Sarah, Sophie, Nanette, my two Emmas, Emily, Gabrielle, Galen, Cassandra, Bree, David, John, and my little spicy Judy. Thank you so, so much. You guys are truly appreciated. And for anyone else, please feel free to join my patrons so that I can bring you more of the stories that you crave. This week's podcast will be about Richard Chase. Now, it goes without saying that this case is pretty disturbing. I mean, he was labeled the vampire of Sacramento. His murders are particularly graphic. So this one comes with my disclaimer, disclaimer. I have skimmed over most of the graphic details that involved a very small child, but the rest, well, you've been warned. Richard Trenton Chase was born on May 23rd, 1950 in Sacramento, California. So, as we always do, to get some context as to the global environment he was born into and possible stressors the parents were going through, Let's get into some history for that time. The Korean War began when North Korea invaded South Korea that June. The country had previously been divided after the end of World War II, with the North becoming communist and the South remaining capitalist. In April, a report was completed and presented to the then U.S. President Harry Truman, which contained recommendations on how to approach the Cold War with the Soviet Union. This would influence U.S. policy with regards to the Cold War for the next 20 years. Some of the main results of the report was that the United States' aggressive military expansion and buildup of nuclear weaponry, as well as enacting the policy of containment against communist nations. So after King Leopold III unconditionally surrendered Belgium to Nazi Germany when they invaded in 1940, he and his family were deported to Germany and then to Austria, only to be liberated by the Allies in May of 1945. In 1950, the citizens of Belgium voted to decide whether or not to allow the exiled king to return to the throne. 
The result was that 57.68% voted for his return. The next year, King Leopold III renounced the throne in an effort to resolve issues over his controversial return. His son took over the crown after he left. India's new constitution officially took effect on January 26th when the new president took the oath of office. The new constitution declared that the country of India would be a sovereign, socialist, and democratic republic that would be organized as a federal union of territories and states, ruled under a parliamentary system. As the constitution of India took effect, the newly self-governing country became the most populous democracy in the world. President Harry S. Truman placed America's railroads under the control of the U.S. Army. That same year, two Long Island commuter trains collided in the Richmond Hills section of Queens, killing 79 people. President Truman also began sending United States military personnel to Vietnam to aid French forces. Albert Einstein warned that nuclear war could lead to mutual destruction. Twelve nations agreed to the creation of North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, for the defense of the United States and Europe. Along with this came the Warsaw Pact, which was established as a balance of power or counterweight to NATO. This year, China invaded Tibet, and in South Africa, the Group Areas Act was passed formally segregating races. So as you can see, this was a tense time, and yet, due to World War II ending and soldiers getting to come home to their wives, this was prime time for the generation that we now call boomers to be born, the baby boomers. People were better able to purchase homes, to get out of the cities, and we see a rather impressive exodus to what we now consider the suburbs. Commuters driving to work rather than walking or taking the bus, and the boomers grew into the hippie generation we all know and love. In fact, many of the most well-known serial killers were in fact from the boomer generation. So this is the atmosphere that Richard was born into. Richard's parents were Richard Chase Sr. and Beatrice Niece. Richard Sr. was a computer specialist at McClellan Air Force Base. Now, I really could not seem to find any information about Richard Sr.'s early life or background. But Beatrice Lauren Niece, born in January 1924, well, her ancestor, Matthias Niece, hailed from Germany, and the descendants then moved around within America, living in Pennsylvania, Virginia, Tennessee, and up into Indiana, where Beatrice was born, and she grew up to be a teacher. Now, it was stated in, quote, Richard Trenton Chase, A Psychobiography of the Dracula Killer by Hanley Theron Nell, that Beatrice was known to be, quote, mentally unstable and spoke with doctors and psychiatrists pretty often. In fact, she was later professionally described as highly aggressive, hostile, and provocative. 
She even later accused Richard's father of cheating on her with the neighbors and, at one point, attempting to poison her. She announced that her husband was once, quote, keeping a woman in the woods to have an affair with. According to the book, quote, Vampire, the Richard Chase Murders, Richard was born nine and a half months after their marriage. How the couple wound up in Sacramento, California, I couldn't find other than Richard Sr. was in the military. Now, Richard's parents were strict disciplinarians who doled out punishment regularly. When he was only two years old, he was force-fed by his father until he vomited. Pamela Chase, his younger sister, would later recall confrontations between her brother and their father that ended with Richard Sr. shaking the boy or throwing him literally against a wall. The elder Richard was allegedly also emotionally abusive and yelled at his son whenever the boy messed anything up, made mistakes. Sometime in 1953, Richard's sister Pamela was born, and in that same year, the family moved into their very first house that they owned. As was with most families during this time period, when his children needed discipline, Richard Sr. was the main one who doled it out. Beatrice liked to at least tell herself that she was much more lenient with the kids. But even when it was considered acceptable to severely spank your kids, well, Richard's parents went overboard. The couple faced financial hardship during Richard's very young years, but when he was in school, he was dressed similarly to the other children and didn't outwardly appear to show that his family had any money troubles. His teachers and peers later described him as a sweet and cooperative boy. In fact, he showed no outward signs of any disturbance at all up until about age 10. Then they bought a house in 1961 and moved, but ultimately that house went into foreclosure. Richard Sr. and Beatrice were having serious marital issues at this point as well. They moved into a duplex for a bit before moving into a house they bought on Montclair Street. At this point, the Chases were finally financially stable. The marriage, however, was not. The two had heated, loud, and horrible fights in front of their children. So again, around the age of 10, Richard began realizing he liked fire, more so than most normal children. He also began catching stray cats, then, then torturing, mutilating, and finally killing them. He also began sneaking alcohol and drinking pretty regularly. Now, by this point, Richard's parents were fighting regularly and loudly. Beatrice was still accusing her husband of sleeping with other women and doing drugs. Richard Sr. told the police when she summoned them that, yeah, he occasionally drank too much and he wasn't great with money, but he would never poison, let alone harm anyone. Richard Sr. also later stated that while his wife would be ranting, young Richard had to have heard the outlandish things that she was saying. Beatrice then began to accuse her husband of having an affair with a female neighbor in the yard 
for all to see. This was, of course, not true, but it was a signal for something else a bit more troubling. Their neighbors believed Beatrice was mentally unstable. She was even committed to a mental facility under the supervision of two psychiatrists at one point. It was thought that she suffered from depression, but I wasn't able to find a definitive diagnosis for her, though I suspect something other than just depression. But again, outwardly, to everyone around him, Richard seemed like a normal kid. He was a Cub Scout, and he loved playing baseball. He had close friends and played with them regularly. For his 12th birthday, he was thrown a party and upwards of 50 kids came to the party and it was a big success. I mean, clearly he was well liked. At 13 years old, Richard decided he wanted to learn to cook, but he consistently burned pans. He spilled ingredients and oil all around the stove and on the floor, which was, of course, a hazard, and he never bothered to pick up or clean any of it. This behavior began to be a somewhat nightly thing. He would be in the kitchen, banging around, horribly burning whatever he was cooking, and leaving the kitchen a complete mess, all while the family was trying to sleep. So at one point, he got out of bed, turned the heat in the house all the way up as hot as it would go, then opened all of the windows in the living room, letting the heat out, and then he stripped naked and laid down on the couch. Both parents were becoming very concerned. He once set fire to a neighbor's garage because, well, he didn't like the loud music they played constantly. So in 1965, when Richard was 15, Beatrice randomly took him and his sister Pamela south from Sacramento to Los Angeles. After eight days of not coming back home, Richard Sr. made the near six-hour drive, got Richard, and drove back home. It would be another four months before Beatrice and Pamela came back home. Not long after they returned, he was arrested for possession of marijuana. His father refused to hire him a lawyer, to which he became furious. The juvenile court sentenced him to do community service on weekends. Now, at this point, Richard's mind began to crack. He started drinking the blood of animals because he was convinced his own blood was poisoned and this was a means of renewing it. He also wasn't outwardly showing signs of having any real empathy. He was becoming severely anxious, mostly about his health. He started holding oranges in his hands and holding one on top of his head, insisting that he believed he would absorb the vitamin C through his skin. He mentioned that he could even feel the bones of his skull separating and moving around beneath his scalp. And as Richard's teen years progressed, he began to show more disordered and delusional thinking, and he began drinking heavily and using recreational drugs, including LSD, to help him kind of manage his thinking. And yet, he was still able, somehow, to maintain his closer friendships and, being the very handsome young man that he obviously was, even dated a few girls, though the relationships would never last long. 
Mostly this was due to his very strange behavior and the fact that he was quite impotent. The only way he was able to maintain an erection was while being violent with animals and penetrating their mutilated corpses. As any young person would, Richard was worried about why he wasn't able to perform with girls, and he went to see a psychiatrist who could really find no reason for his performance issues and told him it was a result of his severe mental illness and repressed anger. But the psychiatrist felt he wasn't severe enough to commit to a psychiatric hospital. Richard was just barely able to graduate high school. And that's it. So now we know his childhood story. Let's dig in. Children brought up during this time were nearly all disciplined the same. To put it bluntly, they were spanked and yelled at. Richard would later say his parents abused him badly, and his sister's statements seemed to at least somewhat support this. Now, each one of us will have a different opinion on how effective spanking is as a tool for discipline, but the research data cannot be ignored. Children who are spanked are at a much higher risk for issues later. According to the American Psychological Association, many studies over many, many years have proven that Using physical punishments such as spanking, hitting, or anything else that causes pain can lead to increased aggression, antisocial behavior, injury, and troubling mental health problems. In fact, internationally, it is now called, quote, legalized violence against children. And while physical punishment can work in the moment because the child is scared to be hit, in the long term, it can make children much more aggressive. The negative effects of spanking aren't immediate. They develop over time. They are accumulative, as we say. And there is still a lot of debate over this issue, right? Many people who are advocates for corporal punishment make the statement, well, I got spanked and I turned out okay. Possibly, but there is increasing evidence to show adults who were spanked are predictably dying at younger ages, suffer from more cancer occurrences, heart disease, respiratory illnesses, and mental illnesses. They're much more likely to have depression and anxiety, like myself. Heart disease, respiratory illness, and mental illnesses, like depression and anxiety, in more cases than most would care to admit. However, with that troubling research, we see that Richard's generation was mostly spanked and most did not display the behaviors that Richard did. And we also know his mother had some issues. What we don't know is her actual diagnosis. Did she actually have depression? She certainly displayed some paranoid tendencies, but that can happen with many mental illnesses. So where do we begin? Healthychildren.org states that there are no genetic tests that can confirm a diagnosis for a mental disorder because life experiences and the person's overall environment play a huge role in the development of a mental disorder. So there's just no genetic way to tell. But 
Studies have shown that the chances of a person having a specific mental disorder is higher if other family members have that same mental disorder, but there are usually considerable differences in the severity of the symptoms. Basically, there's not one specific gene that, if switched on, will result in a mental illness. It is a combination of genetics and environmental factors, nature and nurture, if you will. Can we lean toward him possibly inheriting something from his mother? The chances of that are pretty likely. Was his environment such that it might have, in a way, aggravated that inherent tendency? In my opinion, I very much believe so. So again, in college, I focused my studies on child psychology and criminal law, but I don't have a PhD, so I'm not officially diagnosing anyone, but I believe that what Richard had was early onset schizophrenia. So what does that look like? Children with extreme early onset schizophrenia will display delayed developmental milestones. Sometimes that means they don't learn to speak at the same time as other children do, or they are late crawlers or walkers, but we don't really see that with Richard, or at least that hasn't been noted. What is noted is that he began to display troubling behaviors at around 10 years old. Of course, most people want to place him squarely in the center of the McDonald triad, which is what experts used to say was a set of behaviors that might predetermine someone as potentially becoming a serial killer. And we've all heard of this, right? The fire starting bedwetting long after what is normal and torturing or hurting animals. Richard displayed all three, clearly. He stopped wetting the bed at eight years old, which is far before the 12-year-old mark for the triad, and didn't truly start setting fires or hurting animals until after he was the age of 10. Plus, it has already been proven that the infamous triad isn't as reliable as it once was thought to be. So, one might just think he was a sociopathic or psychopathic child, antisocial child, and It certainly would seem that he was displaying symptoms of a personality disorder, but it's how his behaviors morphed and manifested and developed that make me lean towards schizophrenia. Richard began having some serious paranoia, believing his blood was poisoned, and began drinking the blood of animals to renew himself. He held oranges in his hands or balanced them on his head because he truly believed that he could absorb the vitamin C that way. He said he could feel the bones in his skull moving under his scalp. He was also known to talk to himself a lot or go running down the street yelling disjointed sentences or even random noises. He demanded his mother buy him all sorts of medical devices because, well, he felt that there was always something wrong with him, like an oxygen tent for one, that was a purchase. And the older he got, the more intense his symptoms became. So, yes, his parents fought, but many do. They had financial troubles off and on, but always seemed to manage. And again, most people go through tough times. He was physically and emotionally abused by both of his parents, but his mother was suspected of having a mental illness and Richard could have 
possibly inherited a propensity for that since his environment was intense at times that certainly could have worked together against his mind. Watching one parent's excessive drinking and money problems and displays of violent anger and the other often communicating deep paranoias, harsh discipline, and having to actually go to a mental health facility tells me that Richard was dealing with the nature and nurture that caused him to become the serial killer that he became. So let's get back to the story. Once Richard graduated high school, he moved out and away from his parents and in with some roommates, but that didn't last long. He was using drugs heavily, and he used every kind of drug he could get his hands on. Every. Kind. And his behavior was so bizarre that he once exited his room completely naked, sat down, and started an unintelligible conversation with girls that had visited the roommates. Another story was that he was found lying on the floor one evening, moaning and making strange noises. They said he was not able to speak in any understandable way. Richard once boarded himself up in his room and knocked a hole in his closet wall. His excuse was that he believed he was being, quote, sneaked upon. Needless to say, they asked him to move out, but Richard refused. So the roommates abandoned the apartment, which forced Richard to move in with his father because his parents were, by this point, separated. Now, he did have a job for a short amount of time, but couldn't manage that either. He contemplated going to college, and his family certainly encouraged him to do so. So he enrolled at the American River College and, though not terribly successful, he did manage to go for two years before dropping out. The friends that he did have were beginning to pull away from him, according to an interview with his father later. And Richard had always been good about keeping up with his appearance and grooming, but that was also beginning to deteriorate. He stopped cutting his hair and didn't bathe nearly as often as he should. But it was the times, as they say, many hippies were everywhere, and that was how his generation behaved sometimes. So in 1972, 22-year-old Richard randomly decided to drive from Sacramento into Utah, where he was promptly arrested for drinking and driving. Now, his father bailed him out and brought him back to Sacramento, now, Richard complained that while he was in jail, they had gassed him and it was, quote, just a matter of time, end quote. He started complaining incessantly about illnesses that were increasingly intense and absurd. One such complaint was that his stomach was literally upside down and his heart regularly just stopped beating. His parents would officially be divorced this same year. In April of 1973, Richard went to a party being thrown by some acquaintances and immediately began drinking heavily. The two men at the party left to go buy more alcohol, leaving Richard alone with their female friend. Once they were gone, Richard began touching her and making sexual advances, to which she ordered him to stop. Once the men returned, he was thrown out. 
But before he was out the door, he began screaming that no one had the right to tell him what to do and no one could make him do anything he didn't want to do. Richard continued to tell his father that he was terrified all of the time and his heart was beating too fast. Finally, Richard Sr. took his son to the hospital. There, he was treated for high blood pressure. Richard complained to his father that he wanted a car, so his father told him to go get a real job and buy one, but Richard insisted he was too sick to work. The constant arguing back and forth was too much, exhausting if you can imagine, and Richard moved in with his mother. At this point, his mother realized just how thin he had become. His own sister stated that he was, quote, as skinny as a man could get and said he was spooky. Pamela stated that she was actually quite scared of her brother and stayed with friends as much as she could. Richard also had scary, violent tantrums. So at some point, he left his mother's house and lived with a grandmother in Los Angeles. Well, this too did not last long. He refused to bathe or even wash his hands and was constantly complaining about his stomach hurting. His behavior was described as completely irrational. He was sent back to Sacramento to live with his mother. Beatrice took her son in for several medical evaluations and eventually took him to the American River Hospital. While there, he told the doctor that his heart and kidneys had ceased to function and that his pulmonary artery had been stolen. He told the doctor his blood had stopped flowing and his whole body felt numb. Of course, none of this was true, and the doctor brought in a psychiatrist who noted that he, quote, smelled foul and was filthy, end quote. When asked, Richard denied having any hallucinations or delusions and said he knew just as much as any doctor did. There, he was officially diagnosed with chronic paranoid schizophrenia, and he was held for 72-hour observation in the psych ward. But for whatever reason, he was allowed to leave. His mother brought him back, and he marched right back out the second time. So, she told the doctors that she would just take care of him at home. In 1975, 25-year-old Richard applied for Social Security Disability and Welfare, which required a doctor's examination. The notes from the exam stated he was, quote, unkempt looking. 5 foot 11 tall and 145 pounds dangerously underweight end quote the doctor recommended him for welfare stating richard was an quote impossible job candidate and then for a few months his mind was clear enough that he began to exercise and he ate more putting on a bit of weight and things really seemed to be more positive for him but then he had a clear and obvious detachment from reality. He convinced himself that his mother was trying to poison him. Sound familiar? When she cooked for him, he threw the plate on the floor and refused to drink anything that she had mixed or opened. He once opened a new carton of milk and decided to put soap in it to add some flavor because it didn't taste right. 
He shaved his head so that he could watch his cranial bones move around under his scalp. He began openly speaking to people who were not there and said he was receiving telepathic messages from imaginary people. Beatrice became so frightened that she had his father intervene and paid for him to have his own apartment. And once he was left to his own devices, guys, things went even further downhill. Richard had a bicycle and he rode it to a nearby rabbit farm regularly where he bought them, took them home and butchered them himself for consumption. In April of 1976, Richard Sr. decided to pay his son a random visit. When he approached the apartment door, he found it open. His son was sitting there in nothing but his underwear, extremely pale and quite obviously sick. Richard told him he bought a bad rabbit and might have gotten food poisoning, so he had decided to inject himself with rabbit blood. Absolutely horrified, his father rushed him to Sacramento Community Clinic, and he was admitted in the emergency room. Richard told the doctor that the rabbit had gotten into some battery acid and that that acid had absorbed through the walls of his stomach and into his skin. He said he also knew his blood pressure was zero. Tests revealed he had blood poisoning. But once Richard realized he had been admitted, in sheer terror, he became inconsolable, saying he was going to catch something from the other patients. He was then transferred to the psychiatric unit and was again diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. While there, he complained that his body was falling apart and that his entire circulatory system was not even working. A 14-day hold was ordered. He managed to escape two days later, but thankfully, his father brought him right back. So while in the mental health facility, he earned the nickname Dracula because all he ever spoke about was blood and killing animals, and somehow he was able to capture birds from his window where he would promptly behead them and smear the blood on his face. In fact, his behavior was so disturbing that two nurses literally quit their jobs so that they would not have to deal with him. After four months, his parents had him discharged, the notes of which said he had, quote, developed good socialization skills, a realistic view of his problems, and his thinking was clearer, end quote. With his parents' help again, Richard got another apartment and his mother bought his groceries and paid for his electricity. She also decided he, you know, no longer needed his medications and told him to stop taking them, which was the worst mistake of her life. But, you know, at first things were going well. He continued to visit his doctors when he was supposed to and seemed to be doing pretty well, but within a short couple of months, he started complaining of headaches that he said were due to a blood clot in his brain. His mother took him in to be evaluated, scanned, and he was shown that he did not have a blood clot. In 1977, at 27 years old, he bought himself a 1966 Ford Ranchero. 
At this time, he also got into an argument with his mother and he slapped her hard enough that he knocked her to the floor. He found his old love of torturing and killing animals again and immersed himself completely into his delusions. Visiting his mother once, he grabbed her cat. He ripped it apart right in front of her, smearing the blood all over his face. He then went on to mutilate her German shepherd dog as well. And though devastated, Beatrice did absolutely nothing. And then pets around his neighborhood began disappearing. And everyone knew who was guilty, but he terrified them so completely they suffered in silence. Richard began to believe he was the reincarnation of one of the members of the old Jesse James gang. He also convinced himself that Nazis were coming for him and were going to turn his blood into powder. He talked about UFOs and was completely fascinated with the Hillside Stranglers, which were two, at that time, active serial killers in L.A. On August 3, 1977, the police found Richard's vehicle near the Pyramid Lake Reservation in Nevada. Inside the vehicle was a fully loaded rifle and another gun both smeared with blood. In the driver's seat was some men's clothing with blood and a pair of tennis shoes also smeared with blood. In the floorboard was a white bucket and inside was a fresh liver in a pool of blood. Completely and understandably astonished, they look around and they noticed Richard, naked, sitting on a rock not too far away. He, of course, ran, but they caught him and arrested him. He had blood smeared all over his body. Once at the station, they asked him where the blood came from, and he answered in a very high-pitched voice that it was his and, quote, seeping from me, end quote. Now, tests showed the liver and blood were, in fact, from a cow, but for whatever reason, the charges were dropped and Richard was allowed to leave. I mean, how in the hell? Four months later, on December 29, 1977, Richard was driving through a neighborhood when he randomly noticed 51-year-old Ambrose Griffin getting groceries out of his car. Richard shot him in the chest, killing him. Then a month later, Richard was walking around a neighborhood picking up animal feces, of all things, and putting it in his mouth. He walked into a house, went into a child's bedroom, and left his feces on the child's bed. He then opened a drawer full of baby clothes and urinated in it. He then left that house and entered the home of 22-year-old Teresa Wallen. She was three months pregnant. He pulled out a gun and shot her three times, two bullets hitting her in the head. He then went to the kitchen, got a steak knife, and dragged her to the bedroom where he removed her clothes. He then proceeded to have intercourse with her dead body, then mutilated her, pulling a portion of her intestines through her abdominal wall, then filling a yogurt container that he had gotten out of the trash with blood and bits of organ, and he ate it. He then stuffed dog feces in her mouth and left. 
And guys, I'm not putting her crime scene photo on this. Not for any amount of money in the world would I do that. If you want to see it, you can Google it. On January 27, 1978, Richard entered the home of 38-year-old Evelyn Meroth. In the living room, Richard shot 52-year-old Daniel Meredith in the head. He then shot and killed Evelyn, her six-year-old son James, and her two-year-old nephew David, whom she was babysitting. He then took Evelyn's and James's bodies to the bedroom where he raped her body, then cut her abdomen open and removed some organs. He placed her son beside her in the bed. And guys, the crime scene was horrible. There was blood smeared all over the walls and the bathtub was full of bloody water. Richard took the body of the two-year-old and dumped it in a cardboard box in a vacant parking lot. It was found two months later. Investigators found clear handprints and shoe imprints in the blood in the house, and it didn't take long for them to find out Richard had been the murderer. They located him in his apartment and they arrested him. And looking around, they saw that the walls, the floor, the ceiling, the refrigerator, and all of his kitchen utensils were covered and caked in blood. Richard at first refused to talk. He was interviewed by psychiatrists who noted that he showed no empathy for his victims. This was his confession. Quote, The first person I killed was sort of an accident. My car was broken down. I wanted to leave, but I had no transmission. I had to get an apartment. Mother wouldn't let me in at Christmas. Always before, she let me come in at Christmas, have dinner, and talk to her, my grandmother, and my sister. That year, she wouldn't let me in, and I shot from the car and killed somebody. The second time, the people had made a lot of money, and I was jealous. I was being watched, and I shot this lady, got some blood out of it. I went to another house, walked in, a whole family was there. I shot the whole family. Somebody saw me there. I saw this girl. She had called the police and they had been unable to locate me. Kurt Silva's girlfriend. He was killed in a motorcycle accident as a couple of my friends were and I had this idea that he was killed through the syndicate, that he was in the mafia selling drugs. His girlfriend remembered about Kurt. I was trying to get information. She said she was married to somebody else and wouldn't talk to me. The whole syndicate was making money by having my mom poison me. I know who they are, and I think it can be brought out in a court of law if I can pull the pieces together like I've been hoping. End quote. And as you can see, it's complete nonsense. Richard pleaded not guilty by reason of insanity. His trial lasted four months, and for whatever reason, the psychiatrist deemed him sane during his murders. This I cannot even compute. Sincerely, I cannot see how they deemed him sane. I cannot. But ultimately, he was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to death in the gas chamber. While awaiting his death sentence, he was housed in San Quentin. The other inmates were a bit scared of him and threatened to kill him. They also demanded he kill himself. The prison doctor stated he should be transferred to another prison for the criminally insane because he was, quote, psychotic, 
insane, and incompetent, end quote. He was sent there, put on antipsychotics. He actually showed great improvement and was sent back to San Quentin in April of 1980. Then on December 26, 1980, the guards were doing morning rounds and they saw him in his cell alive and well. A few hours later, he was seen face down with his face mashed into the mattress. Next to him were four sheets of paper with his handwriting. Two pages were drawn images, kind of like code, and the other two were of him stating he might drink some pills, which would cause his heart to stop beating. What he did do was save his psych meds for three weeks and take them all at once, effectively ending his life. He was 30 years old. So where to begin? Richard was a very sick young man who desperately needed intervention long before he ever got it. There were a number of opportunities where his very bizarre behavior was discovered, and yet he was allowed to be free out into society. During his first admittance into the psych ward of a hospital for the 72-hour hold, he was allowed to just walk out. Another time he was admitted to hospital, he was put on medications, which did at least make a dent in his symptoms, and he felt much better, so much so that he was released. But his mother told him to stop taking the medications, that he didn't need it. I cannot for the life of me even begin to understand how a mother who knew her son was so severely disturbed could tell him to stop taking his meds. Now, there are people who do not want to take antipsychotics because they cannot tolerate the side effects. And while I don't know specifically what medications he was given, a very common drug given to people with schizophrenia in the 70s was chlorpromazine. It is used for a few different things like nausea, anxiety before surgery, chronic hiccups, all the way up to people who are bipolar and onto schizophrenia. Being on this medication requires regular checkups with a physician, including vision screenings, and you just can't stop taking it or the withdrawal symptoms can be intense. Using this medication in this long term can cause uncontrolled muscle movements in the face that can become irreversible, but that's the extreme. The common side effects are drowsiness, dry mouth, constipation, and impotence, which in my opinion should have been some form of relief rather than his delusions. And of course we don't know for sure, but there is nothing in Richard's story where he complained about his medication, only that his mother decided he didn't need to take it anymore. I believe that if Richard had an early intervention and truly gotten the care he needed, he would not have murdered anyone. And I have to ask you, do you think his parents hold any level of responsibility? And especially with regards to his mother. And especially because she knew how very sick he was, and yet she still told him he didn't need his medication? Or perhaps do you think she too suffered from some level of paranoid delusions and advised her son as best as she could considering her own circumstances. So tell me guys, what do you think? 
You can leave me a comment below. All of my contact information is down there. And thank you so much for listening because I know you could be listening to anyone else, but you chose me and I really appreciate that. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great day.